0: Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, October 27th, 2019, we continue our series titled Genesis, In the Beginning. Today's sermon, A Journey of Promise, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Genesis chapters 37-1 through 38-30. Enjoy. You probably didn't know today that you're gonna come to church and you're gonna probably blush we're going to cover Genesis chapter 37 and 38 especially, are of course chapters that uh, as some said to me in the first service that I drove the short straw, all those things. I blamed Pastor Bob. I want to apologize because he's in the service today, and uh, this service, and uh, I know 19 or 20 of you went and talked to him about what he was doing to me. So. <laughs> but it is an honor actually to come and just teach through God's Word. Uh, today, a um, little bit different style. Um, we're going to really let the story tell its own story. And uh, because it does deal with things that that will, in fact, possibly make us blush, or at least at a minimum, we'll look back upon our patriarchs and say to ourselves, man, they were really messed up. But I got to tell you, if they were looking forward at us, we're really messed up. And so we'll see some things that are difficult to swallow and difficult for us to understand, but how they in fact work within God's plan and within His providence, that which He is orchestrating to His resulted end. But I'm going to challenge you as you're thinking through this story as it unfolds, that on this journey, you and I come from a completely different vantage point. We, of course, get the great joy of being on this side of redemptive history where we know who the Messiah is. We know specifically who is the one that came and crushed the head of the serpent. These are people who not only did not have the Mosaic law at this time, they had the stories that were passed down from generation to generation. And so the story that they're hoping in each child, each male that is born, is that this will be the one. This is the one that will crush the head of the serpent and bruise its heel. And so as they're passing this down, remember that you have a slightly different advantage because you've read the end. You know what's going to happen. I hope that today's message gives you a good introduction of that which is to come. It's a prologue. It's an introduction as much as it is a narrative. But as you're looking at those observations points, the observation points or the vantage point is to understand that, be listening to the characters that are unfolding here. What was their motivation? How did they make the decisions that they made? What could have possibly compelled them to do the very things that they did? When you think, I think that, you know, we all have a family member, right? A family member that we probably don't like to talk much about. For us, passed down from generation to generation, we've always joked about, what is commonly referred in our house as Cousin Vern. Cousin Vern, being a good hillbilly from, from Missouri, uh, was not known for a lot of great things. Cousin Vern was a guy whose most famous, most infamous phrase was, is he always wanted to have a job, he would really like to work, but all work is north, and he breaks out in hives if he were to drive north, so he has to stay home. About three weeks ago, after I would preached, I had said the statement, there's nothing in the scriptures that would indicate to us that there's such a thing as a functional family. A person came to me and said, yeah, Jeff, but what about Jesus' family? Don't you think Jesus' family was at least functional? What family do you think we've been talking about here? This is the family of Christ. And as we all know, if you have believed in Jesus, right, this is your family as well. And so when we peel back the layers of understanding who this family is, it's our family. It's the patriarchs of, of our family. We're going to see how that all comes together here. If you'll recall in Genesis fifteen thirteen, is where God promised Abram. He said that 400 years of captivity and affliction is what's going to happen. So in the stories and what's being told to them, God told them that there's coming a time where there's going to be 400 years of captivity for the Hebrews. Today, point one is a journey to the promised land. A journey to the promised land. This first part of chapter 37 reflects in the middle of that journey because it is, in fact, a beginning point of the 400 years of captivity. I'll start in Genesis 37, verse 1. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. Canaan, just so you understand geographically where we are, is what's called the lowland. It is, in fact, today, it encompasses Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza, Jordan, and the southern portions of Syria and Lebanon. He says, these are the generations, this toldot that we've talked about. We've seen about 10 of them now. And in these toldots, these are the next generation. So in this next generation of Jacob, we are introduced to Joseph. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bala and Zilpha." His father's wives and Joseph brought a bad report to them, to their father. Now Israel, as Thomas talked about last week, right? Israel is Jacob's name, his new name, his second name. The word, in fact, Israel just means God prevails. It's the centerpiece of our discussion here today. It is God that prevails. And it will be through the seven or the 12 tribes of Israel as we will see very clearly here. So it says, now Israel, also known as Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. Remember in, in Genesis 32, 27 through 30 is where we're told about the story of Israel. Israel where we're told about Jacob becoming Israel. And the reason why he became Israel is that it's in verse 29. It says, then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. You see, they understood that to go face to face with God meant ultimately Standing in the holy presence of God would be imminent or immediate, falling to the down, ground as a dead man. But it's back up in this verse 20, uh, 28 when he says the reason why he's, named, uh, why he's named Ishmael is that God and with men and have prevailed. Because God is the one who has prevailed. He goes on to say, and he made him a robe of many colors. Finishing up verse 3. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. That word hate there is literally the word hate. It's not keyed up any other direction. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, remember they already hate him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind, Is this possible what God's doing here? that Joseph is going to rise to a position of prominence and that we ourselves will bow down to him. Now his brothers went to the pasture, pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And, and Israel said to Joseph, are, are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. We're going to see this in Isaiah, right? I mean, here am I, send me. So his willingness to go, so he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem and, he, and a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away for I heard them say, let us go to Dathan.'" So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired, right? The nakal means to, to plot, to be deceitful or to be crafty. They plotted against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Maybe for some of us, we find ourselves in this same kind of journey, comparing and contrasting our lives to other people's, finding ourselves looking at their life. Maybe it's through social media. Comparison, of course, is the robber of all joy. It steals everything from you. But here we had favoritism and the brothers that truly hated their brother, Joseph. He says to them, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see that, uh, what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. That he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So, Reuben's plan was to come back and to pull him out of the pit once everyone had come to cooler minds. So, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many color, colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water, it's an empty well. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites means God will hear, is the descendant of Ishmael. You remember that story when Ishmael was lying under the bush, and he cried out to God, and God heard him. But these descendants of Ishmael are coming from Gilead uh, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, and they're on their way to uh, carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, Judah interjects himself now, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Judah is immediately going to the heart of the situation and saying, hey, if we kill him, there's no real money in it for us. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh and his brothers listen to him. And then the Midianites, which are A tribe within the tribe. They're a lower class or a lower skill set. So it is them uh, that are passing by with the Ishmaelites and the traders pass by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. This was the way for the boys to have a little bit of an arm's distance. So they get these guys to pull them up and they get them to sell them into, into slavery. And then they themselves can say that I didn't really do anything. But as we start to unfold here in verse 29, it says, when Reuben returned, remember he had the idea not to kill him, just to throw him in the pit because he wanted to come back and see what was going on. So when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Man, this is really corrupt. To take the robe of your son son and take it before its father and say, is this your son's? He identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but they refused to be comforted and said, "No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning." Sheol here is not the word necessarily for hell. It can be used that way, but it's 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 really talking about this depth of despair. It's a place without the praise of God, and it's a place of no return. He's mourning the loss of his son. It says, Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. I can't imagine such a thing. In all the sibling rivalry I had with my older sisters, I never even thought of the idea that I could sell them into slavery. (laughs) I know that they probably presented to my parents that I was devoured by an animal many times. But the depravity of what's going on here, the sickness of what's happening within this family, the tearing apart that's taking place because, in fact, they're wondering how in the world, how in the world do we get this guy we hate so much out of our lives, this dreamer? Like I said, this is the beginning of the journey to the promised land. Joseph being slowed into slavery will ultimately lead to his brothers joining him and them all being in, captured and in captive, the 12 tribes of Israel, as God had promised in Genesis 15. For 400 years, you will be led into such captivity. You see, I think one of the greatest difficulties we deal with as people is that we find ourselves continually standing at the crossroads of life. And we find ourselves asking this simple question. Imagine if you would, if you stood at this crossroad, in it is a pole, and there's two signs. One sign says to live your life. Live your life to trust him. While the other sign with another arrow pointing in a different direction says, live your life to please him. Which is it? Are we supposed to live our life to trust him? Or are we supposed to live our life to please him? You see, scripture seems confusing. In 2 Corinthians 5.9 it says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. But yet Psalm 46.10, part A says, be still and know that I am God. In some interpretations, it'll literally say, cease striving. The question is, do you seek to please God or do you simply trust him? I believe many of us would say that we desire to do both. But if you had to choose or focus on one or the other, which would it in fact be? Do I trust him or do I please him? You see, the fact of the matter is, is we start to realize that effort born out of striving to please God never ceases to tire us. Let me say that again. Effort born out of striving to please God never ceases to tire us. And effort born out of resting in his pleasure never ceases to renew us. You see, pleasing God is a byproduct of trusting God. The call of our life is to simply trust God. Him, to believe on Him. That's why we look in the past and we see in our rearview mirror this mess of a family and we say, oh man, they are really jacked up. And we don't adequately look in the mirror and realize so are we. And we are just as dependent upon what God is going to do in the path that He's leading us as anyone on this earth the call of the Christian is to trust in him and know where he's taking us. Where he's taking us is the promised land. But the first step of this promised land is gonna be 400 years in captivity as we'll ultimately see where they end up. Our second point as we go into verse chapter 38 is to understand the journey to the promised one. It's important for us to understand because this seems so odd. It's an interruption in the story of Joseph. And suddenly it it kind of takes this second path and it gives you something that's happening almost simultaneously. And it's the story of Judah and Tamar. It happened at that time in verse one that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Harah. Um, the Adulamite is a person who's from Adullam, and it's a royal city within the Canaanites. Verse 2, there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. To take her is literally the Hebrew word, uh, lakach, which means to take or to get or to fetch or to lay hold of, but mainly in the primary point here is to marry and take a wife. You can tell that there was no recreational dating within these days. In verse 4, it says, she conceived again and bore a son. So she has Ur, now she has a son whose name will be called Onan. And then again, she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Jezeb in the city when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked. The word there, ra, which just means bad, evil. It says that he was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. But we see another phrase that's going to come out in English is wicked again here in, chapter, in, in verse 9 or verse 10. and It starts in 8. It says, then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of your brother-in-law and raise up offspring for your brother. You see, it was customary at this time that if the older brother died and had not yet um, procreated children or a son in particular, that the next younger brother would in fact step up to give that sister-in-law a boy so that the name could continue forward, so that Ur's name would not be lost. But Onan, he knew that the offspring would not be his. Listen to the motivation and the decision-making that's going on here. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give an offspring to his brother. And what he did was w- wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. So we see two aspects of wicked here. The first one of wicked is that Ur himself was wicked. He was evil. In the second example, we see that what Onan did was evil. Was evil. So either way, the net result is, is that whether you are evil or you do evil, the, re- the consequence is in fact Death. For the wages of sin is death. God struck them dead. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. You start to see the motivation of the decision-making turning in his head for he feared that he would die like his brother's. So he's deferring as long as he possibly can because from his vantage point, the only thing that Judah understands is that his son Ur and Onan were with this woman and now they're both dead. So maybe there's something wrong with Tamar rather than something in what they're doing. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house trusting that Shelah would become of age and then he would in fact bear her a child and she would be able to be the uh, the heiress that brings the son, the name, household name, back into line. But in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Tanah uh, to his sheep shearers. He and his friend hurrah, that's that Adulamite who's always bad news, right? He's that friend from Canaanite that every time he's around you, something bad's about to happen. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Tanah to shear his sheep, she understood the character of Judah. So in her own conspiring, this is what she does. She says she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Enam, which is the road to Tamar. And so the veil, if you want to picture it, is likened to that of a modern-day burqa. She's completely covered Because the question is going to be, is how could a man not recognize his own daughter-in-law? But she says, it also says that she was wrapping herself up. The word wrapping here is not that she wrapped herself in the veil. It's that she made her disposition of her body to be such a way that she wasn't obvious. She fainted a bit and she kind of hunched over is what the word literally means. She's positioning herself so that she doesn't walk the same or stand the same as the, as the daughter-in-law. Because she understands and knows the character of her father-in-law. In this particular case, it says, For she saw, for she saw this is her motivation, that Shaloh was grown up. And she had not been given to him in marriage. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. For she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me? Oh, the the decision-making that's going on here, the conspiring. What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? Very crafty. She replies, your signet. This is as powerful as asking for a fingerprint in today's DNA and forensics. You give me your signet and your cord and your staff in your hand. So he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood and went back to the family campus. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute? The term cult prostitute is making reference that she was on the road just outside the temple and in the square of the town. And the cult prostitute was this person who worked just outside of the temple. So where is the cult prostitute who was at Anam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been there or been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things of her own and we shall be laughed or we shall be laughed at. So he wants to get out of Dodge before anyone finds out what he's done. You see, I sent this young goat, now he's justifying. I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. So I've kept my word. Man of great honor. But about three months later, Judah was told, Tomorrow, your young daughter-in-law has been immoral. That word immoral there is the word fornicate. Has been a fornicate. Moreover, she is pregnant by fornication. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. No hypocrisy here, right? As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. What things do you think those were? (laughs) The signet, the cord, and the staff. And then Judah, in verse 26, identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shela." And he did not know her again. In other words, he did not have sexual relations with her again. That term, she is more righteous than I. He's not saying that she's perfect or that she's holy. What he's saying is that it is to justify, to be just or to be righteous. Or in this case, to have a just cause is what he's saying. Because he knew at that point that his sin had actually driven her to her sin. We do that to each other, do we not? You see, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. This is the second and only other set of twins we see in scripture. First we had Esau and Jacob, now we have Perez and Zerah. But, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, And the midwife took it and tied a scarlet scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which just means to breach. I can't imagine the pain that must have been going on as two babies passed in the birth canal. But afterwards, his brother came out and the scarlet thread that was on his hand and his name was called Zerah. Zerah is, um, it means rising. And he's the grandson of Esau and he's ultimately gonna be one of the dukes of the Edomites. So he's gonna be a follower down the path of Esau. Whereas Perez, without Perez, we don't get Jesus. Perez is the direct descendant to Christ He is of the royal line of David and ultimately to Jesus himself. As we start to try and apply this story, it's in all the distractions of life and family that we should probably never forget where we journey and to whom we journey to see. You see, the journey of life is both the promised land and the promised one. Just as they were traveling to get to the promised land and ultimately to see the promised one that would crush the head of the serpent. So as are we. For it is us that will in fact see the promised land, the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21 verse 10, if we skip to the end of the book, it says, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. You see, this is where we're going, the promised land, where we will... Be led by the King of kings and the Lord of lords for all eternity, the promised one. All of this is a prologue and an introduction of that which is to come. So we ask ourselves, so what? What do we do? What, what? It's Monday, I gotta go to work. Jeff, how does this absolutely apply to my life? Here's what I want you to understand. God is going to take care of his chosen family. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then you are part of the family of Abraham. And of Jacob and of Joseph and of David and so on and so on and of Jesus Christ. His ultimate plan and his ultimate destination for you is to be in the presence of him in perfection for all eternity. The second thing is that God uses unlikely people regardless of their past in our lives to lead us to this promised land and to this promised one. Tamar is an example of this. She is the first of four very important women. You see, not many people pay attention to this, but Tamar was the schemer. We're going to see, or or you'll see in other scriptures, that Rahab was in fact a prostitute. That Ruth is an unlikely, untrustworthy foreigner. And Bathsheba is the victim of rape and murder. But each of these ladies is in fact a matriarch that leads to the person of Jesus Christ. None of them are in fact Jewish. And it's what allows you and I as Gentiles to be grafted into the holy seed which is Israel. That we too are part of the 12 tribes of Israel because of who Christ is. I want you to know that there is no type of person that God cannot use. There's no type of person that God cannot use and there is no situation that God cannot redeem. No matter how wicked your past or how evil things have been, look to Jesus and live. The whole point of the gospel is that we stand before him wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and in Christ and Christ alone. He is our cornerstone. He is the one to which we serve and prosper. He is the one to which we live our lives. If you are here today and you have not ever given your life to Christ, I beg of you today to humble yourself and give your life to Christ. To live for him. Regardless of what's in your past, there is nothing that cannot be redeemed. You can stand before a holy God holy and righteous because of what christ has done not because of what you've done i would beg of you to stop striving and start trusting if we're going to live our lives for christ it will be rooted in trust in christ you see hebrews 11 1 tells us faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. The promised land, the promised one, and understanding that Israel means that God will prevail always. Today, as the last day of the month, we will embark upon communion. As I ask those who are going to serve the elements today to come forward and to begin that process, it is my prayer that we would come to see Christ and Christ alone in all of Scripture. But see today the journey to the promised land and the journey of the promised one is all throughout God's word. May we grow in this grace and the knowledge of his Son. Our Father and our God, we humble ourselves and we come before you today asking for your direction. Lord, as we stand before you as sinners, We know that you and you alone are the one that has given everything so that we could be righteous before you. Help us to believe on you, to trust in you, to serve you. And may the the compelling result be pleasing to you. But Lord, help us to trust in you in all things and in all ways. In Christ's name, amen. The night that Christ was betrayed, He took the bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body. The sacrifice that Christ has made for us is greater than anything we could possibly even fathom. He says, when you eat this bread, do so in remembrance of him and what he has accomplished for you. Likewise, he took the cup Took the wine and he says, This is my blood. It is the new covenant. It's this new promise. That promise that all who believe in him, that trust in him, will in fact be saved, grafted into the one chosen people of God, his family. When we do this, we do this in remembrance of him. Father, we thank you so much for your son. Lord, as we so often look past in the past patriarchs, we kind of shake our head and disgust as to how they're living. I can't possibly fathom if they could look forward what they would see on earth here today. Help us, Lord, to live our life for you in Christ and in Christ alone. Amen. God prevails. No matter what's happened in our past, you and I are, if we are in Christ and Christ is in us, then we are in fact redeemed, wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. I hope that it finds us in a place of great trust, that the sovereign God of the universe, the most provident of all things, is divinely appointing each step in your journey to the promised land to live for eternity with the promised one. God be the glory. Love and minister to one another, and I love to see you guys all again next week. God bless you.